Good morning. Well, it is so nice to see everybody. It is very nice to be back, uh, back at this. It seems like the summer went quickly, but uh, at the same time, it seems like it's been a really long time since we've been together. So it's, uh, it's good to get back into the rhythm. Hopefully everyone has a handout and the sign-up sheet is out there. If you did not sign in, please do. If your name was not on the list, please write your name there, and we will add it to the forever list. But I think everybody's been here, so I think your, everybody's name was on there. Let's, let's go ahead and begin, and the best place to begin, I think, would be in Genesis chapter 49, and we're going to jump around today, but if you start at Genesis 49, that'll be a, a good place to begin. And so the theme for this women's study this year is going to be the Gospels and a light for our path. So how the, how the Gospels form and inform our lives. And so we're going to look at different themes that, of what Jesus has done or taught. And we're going to look at them. So the Gospels are the epicenter. And we, it'll fan out then into other places in the Scriptures. So something Jesus does, something Jesus says... And then we're going to fan out into the Old Testament and into the rest of the New Testament and see how that affects our lives, the life of a Christian, the life of the church. And we're going to look at what we deal with in life as well. So uh, today we are going to look at the concept of Shiloh. And in the Old Testament, Shiloh is a place but it actually has a particular meaning. So Shiloh is our rest giver. And we know who our rest giver is, but we're going to just sort of surf along here in the scriptures and see what we find. But so think about the concept of rest. It's all over in the Bible, right? But how often do we feel at rest? Do you feel like you're at rest most of the time? <laughs> or do you always feel like this, you know? <laughs> Where am I? <laughs> What's going on? <laughs> yeah, you know, there are so many things that, that get to us. And, you know, we have uh, anxiety, we have turmoil, we worry, uh, we have angst, we are in motion, and oftentimes we feel like the things that are in motion around us are out of our control. So we're in motion, things are in motion, the cosmos are in motion, but we can't seem to get synergy, right? If we could just sort of, if, right? If everything was just the way it should be, 
then we would be in, have some semblance of peace. But rest is really hard to find. It's really hard to obtain. And if we do get it, it's for moments. And then something happens in our lives. So we have things going on, activities, uh, things beyond our control. And so, you know, and you think about the early Christians, and they really spent a lot of time thinking about vices and virtues. What, what is it that we experience, and how do they affect us, and how do we get out of those things that can hurt us and into the things that, that Jesus provides? So when we think about this stuff, the early Christians, they said that there's this continuum that a person often goes down. And so I'm going to give you Greek stuff, but I'll give you the English too. So the Greek for this particular one is, and this is, I don't know how easy this is to see. Um, this is Enicus, and this means guilt. I'm going to have to get a different one here. So this is guilt. So often we feel guilt. There, that's a good one. We feel guilt for things that we've done or not done. And I, does, that, does that resonate with anybody here? Yeah, I'm really bad with this. You know, I'm always like, I could have done better. I should have done it differently. I should have said it differently. You know, if I'd have done that, I would have saved myself from like five different problems down the road. Is this anybody else? This is me. And so guilt is the first problem. And, you know, Lutherans, for some reason, we're, we're big on this. Hey, we are always feeling guilt, you know. And then the next thing then is lupe, which is grief. So then we experience grief. And grief starts to settle a little bit, you know? It, uh, it's not one of those vices that's out there on the surface, but it sort of like goes just a little deeper. Because grief to me is like settling in the soul and you just start kind of simmering in it. Does anybody else have a different explanation or a better explanation to add to this grief? But it is, you're like starting to simmer in the juices of, ah, right? I don't, I don't like the way I feel. I, you know, the mistakes I've made, the things I've said, the things I've done, you know, those were actions out on the surface and now I'm living with it and it just sort of sits there, right? And then, now some people just live in, in the grief category for a long time. But sometimes, if you get, you know, we try to energize ourselves to come out of it. I don't like the way I feel. I really would like to get out of this. And so you start kind of like getting yourself going. Now, that's energy. So I guess I would maybe put this up here, energia. That's the word for energy. 
Um, negative energy does different things though, right? Like if, if, if we try to get energy going to kind of come out of grief, but it's not the right kind of energy, then something else will happen. And this is picra, which is harshness. or maybe anger, it starts to come out. So it comes out in different ways, or it could be bitterness. It could be bitterness. And so, you know, you're trying to pull yourself out, but sometimes then you start going in a different direction. And then if that doesn't get rectified, then the next thing is, in Greek, degma, which is to bite or strike. And this is so much of the world. You know, when we try to deal with this on our own, then bad things or worse things or just different categories of bad things happen. Now, this concept right here, energy or energia, is used in the book of Acts for the work of the Holy Spirit. So if we, if we look to the things of our Lord, then there can be a good energy. The Holy Spirit will pull us out. And This, but, but what's happening here, like if you kind of go back to here, you're looking for rest and joy and peace. Because, right, like inherently, this is often what I, when I talk to people outside the church, I often try to get them to think about what are the good virtues that they seek? Because everybody wants rest, right? Everybody wants some rest and some ease and some joy and some goodness. And so that's where everybody wants to live. But then this comes in. Things happen, we feel the guilt, and now all of a sudden we're running away from or we're moving away from rest. But then we are trying so hard to get back to the rest. But if it's not understood properly and not done in the right way, we end up moving further and further and further away from rest. And the next thing you know, what would, what would be after this? I mean, I haven't really seen the early church fathers talk about what's beyond that, but... Murder. Okay, <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's right. That's exactly right. <laughs> Murder. Um, yeah, and chaos, right? A world that wants rest and joy and ease but can't find it and starts going in the other direction, you, get, you end up further and further away from the very thing that one seeks. And this is where our world is and always has been since the fall. 
there's always this spiraling out and down and away from things holy, and it gets worse and worse and worse. And, you know, there's other things, too. I mentioned this in the sermon Sunday that, and this, this is funny because one of, the, one of the confirmands, you know, they do the sermon notes, and one of the confirmands for the question wrote, uh, why, why is pleasure uh, exhausting? Because <laughs> I talked about how um, pleasure can lead to exhaustion, and that can lead to frustration. And so that's a natural question, right? Like, how could that be? Pleasure? Come on. But so the thing is, is if, if our soul seeking is just pleasure, then we, we could always be frustrated because it'll never be what we thought it would be, right? Like, have you ever had that problem? Like, does anybody have buyer's remorse? Does anybody suffer from buyer's remorse? I am terrible with that. Like, you know, when I was younger, I'd go and buy a CD and I'd get like, it was a whole thing. I'd get pumped up and I'm like, I'm going to go get a CD and I don't know what I'm going to get, but I've got a list and this is going to be great, you know? And then I go and I f go to the CD, right? They don't even have these anymore, but you go to a music shop and you get a CD and you're like, ah, I can't wait to listen to it. And you put it in and you start listening to it and then buyer's remorse sets in. <laughs> I could have done something else with that 15 bucks. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> and yeah, yeah. And so the pleasure, the anticipated pleasure was better than the actual. And then you're like, and also, right, the law of diminishing returns. My first cup of coffee of the day is the best cup, right? And I'm like, boy, I can't wait to get to that second cup. And you're like, oh, that wasn't as good as the first one. And, you know, the next thing you know, you're like, I'm sick of coffee. You know, now I got to deal with the day or whatever. And so if one only seeks pleasure, the energy employed to seek what we have in our minds as pleasure can and will lead to exhaustion. Which I, so here's the irony a life solely sought on pleasure will not find rest. But exhaustion and frustration. So there must be something else that is a component to the concept of rest. It's deeper. It's not just at the surface. And so when we think about what Shiloh is in the Bible, Shiloh is a true rest. And it's a deep rest. And so let's take a look at some scripture and jump around a little bit. And we're going to start here in Genesis chapter 49. And it's the chapter where Jacob blesses his sons. 
And particularly starting at verse 8, where we have Judah. And we all know that the Savior springs out of Judah. And so let's read this, Genesis 49, verse 8. Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hands shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down. He crouched as a lion and as a lioness. Who dares rouse him? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Binding his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine, he has washed his garments in wine and his vesture in the blood of grapes. His eyes are darker than wine and his teeth whiter than milk. Now, what I would like to know from, from you is anybody that doesn't have the English Standard Version, what does it say for the word tribute where it says, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him? Does anybody have a different? Man of peace. Man of peace? Wow, what's your version there? Oh, okay, that's very interesting. That's closer to the Hebrew, I think. Uh, what else? Does anybody have anything else? Yes. What is, which is the verse? That you're talking it's a verse 10. Genesis 49, verse 10. Mm. See, I know it's an Old Testament thing, there was just this really ancient Hebrew, and it's not clear how to interpret it. That's right. That is exactly right. It's ancient Hebrew, so it is not, it's not easy to interpret. Um, so tribute is how it's translated here. But Luther, so Luther too was puzzled, and he says that this, so this is Shiloh. Tribute in Hebrew is Shiloh. And he interprets it as rest giver. So man of peace. So until, and then if you look at this, the way it reads after that, and to him shall be the obedience of, of a people. So it's a him, it's a person. So you have this rest giver who is gonna come out of Judah and then it mentions it, binding his foal to the vine and he's, his donkey's colt to the choice vine. He has washed his garments in wine and his vesture in the blood of grapes. So that's symbolic for what? To wash his robes in wine? Blood. Yeah. So this, this has some heavy implications that our rest giver is one who washes his garments in the red of, of wine or blood. And he will, there's something to do with a colt, the foal of a donkey. We know where this is going, right? Yeah. But in the Old Testament then, 
Shiloh is a place. The book of Joshua is end-capped with Scripture. So if you go to Joshua, let's take a quick look here. Joshua chapter 1. And one of the things we have, I might have mentioned this last year when we gathered together, that there is this theme running between people. So you have Moses, who is, in a sense, kind of a wanderer, right? He leads the people out of Egypt, and they're wandering around, and then he gets in trouble because he smacks the rock, right? And so he can't enter the promised land. He can only see it from a distance. So Moses prepares everything for Joshua. And so Joshua is going to lead the people into the promised land. And the promised land is Shiloh. And we also have, also just kind of for your, your reference, we have along this theme, we have Elijah, who is like a Moses figure, wandering around. Remember, he thinks he's the only one uh, that hasn't bowed the knee to Baal. But then there's Elisha, who follows, who is like a Joshua figure. And Elisha, we see him do miracles that are like, like that of Jesus. And then we have John the Baptist. And John the Baptist is like a Moses and Elijah figure. And then he prepares the way for Jesus. And so, you know, Joshua, Yeshua, is the same name for Jesus. So there's these symbolic, thematic connections that uh, bring it all together. So it makes sense then for what we're going to read that Joshua leads the people into the promised land just as Jesus is going to lead us into the promised land. So in Joshua chapter 1, verse 2, it says, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now therefore arise, go over this Jordan, you and all this people, and into the land that I am giving to them, to the people of Israel. And then in verse 6, Be strong and courageous, for you shall cause this people to inherit the land that I swore to their fathers to give them. And then, verse 8, notice this. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. This is important for our theme of so what's the correct way to find rest? Because what happens in the book of Joshua is they come into the promised land and they go right to the epicenter where the tabernacle is in the tent of meeting and that's the place they call Shiloh. Right there where the Lord's going to come. But in the book of Joshua, the book of Joshua is end-capped with the Torah, the books of Moses. Because remember that for the Old Testament people of God, the books of Moses were to them 
the way the Gospels are to us. They were the message of deliverance. And then you get to verse 12. So Joshua 1, well, I guess you start at verse 10 and let's, let's go there. So Joshua 1, 10 and following. And Joshua commanded the officers of the people, pass through the midst of the camp and command the people, prepare your provisions for within three days, there's number three, you are to pass over this Jordan to go in to take possession of the land that the Lord your God is giving you to possess. And to the Reubenites, the Gadites, and the half-tribe of Manasseh, Joshua said, Remember the word that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you, saying, The Lord your God is providing you a place of rest and will give you this land. So here is Shiloh. Uh, he says, Moses, the servant of the Lord, promised this to you back in, and this would have been back in Numbers chapter 32. And they get Shiloh. Now, the other side of Joshua, go to chapter 18. So what happens in the book of, of Joshua is there is this putting everything in order. So they enter the promised land, they enter the possession, and now Joshua apportions the land to the different groups. So he's getting everything in order. God is providing. So there's something to this with the notion of Shiloh and rest that God provides for you everything that you need. Part of our distress is that we, we worry and we fear of what we could lose and what we don't have. And that doesn't just have to be material possessions. That could be things that are emotional. Those could be things of the soul. Those could be things where we view our identity, that make up our identity. And if we don't have them or we think we might lose them, that's when our anxiety comes in. That's when our worry makes its inroad into our lives. And so this is a bit hidden, but in Joshua, the way it works is it begins with the Torah. So listen to God's word. Joshua, God's servant, is going to lay everything out. And he's going to, in, in laying it out, God is going to take care of his people. And then at the end is more word of God. Now, think about the church in this regard. Your pastor your senior pastor, the one who oversees, is in a sense doing that. You know, he lays it out. He says, you know, we all know this is the Lord's servant. He leads. Everybody listens, follows. You know, and like Pastor Bruzek has taught so much about tithing, lay it at the feet, and it'll all be taken care of. And it's true. 
I mean, it's just like this, you know, and, and if we can drop our gifts at the feet of the Lord's servant, if we can let the Lord use us where we are able through the gifts that the Lord has given to us and we rest in the Lord's direction, we will be at peace. It'll, there'll be a greater peace. I mean, we know, right? In this world, in the world of sin, there's never perfect peace, right? There's never perfect rest. It's always kind of in motion. But we can definitely have a greater peace and a greater rest if we recognize what's happening in Joshua. So in, in Joshua chapter 18, at the first verse, it says, Then the whole congregation of the people of Israel assembled at Shiloh and set up the tent of meeting there. So that's where the worship is, right? That's where God and people meet. The land lay subdued before them. And then you get to verse 8. So men arose and went, and Joshua charged those who went to write this description of the land, saying, Go up and down the land and write a description and return to me, and I will cast lots for you here before the Lord in Shiloh. So here again is this with Shiloh. And in fact, the, so I looked this up just for fun. The Greek Old Testament called the Septuagint translates Shiloh as tent of witness. So in Joshua, the idea there is Shiloh is where God comes to meet his people. That's where Shiloh is. So then for us, Jesus is our Shiloh. And when we go into the church and we gather around the sanctuary, we gather around the altar, Jesus comes to us in word and sacrament, we, we experience our Shiloh there. But more to that later. And so there is this theme that defines the situation and it comes up again in Joshua 23. So take a look at Joshua 23. Starting at the, <clears throat> at the first verse. A long time afterward, when the Lord had given rest to Israel from all their surrounding enemies, and Joshua was old and well advanced in years. Joshua summoned all Israel, its elders and its heads, its judges and officers, and said to them, I am now old and well advanced in years, and you have seen all that the Lord your God has done to all these nations for your sake, for it is the Lord your God who has fought for you. Behold, I have allotted to you as an inheritance for your tribes those nations that remain along with all the nations that I've already cut off, from the Jordan to the Great Sea in the West. So, you know, think there for a moment on what causes us, what causes you all these things that prevent rest? How do we deal with those? Well, the human response is, and this, this is truly a human response, right? I have to fix all my own problems. 
right? I have to fix it. And, and then there's also this lack of trust in other people, right? Nobody else is going to be able to fix it. I'm looking around and I don't see anybody here that's going to be able to help me. I got to do it, right? And so we feel like we have to spring into action all the time. And that's not to say that we should just sit as a stump and do nothing. I'm not saying that. But what I am saying is, if we recognize that our Lord is the one who goes ahead for us, that can help bring some rest. You know, there was just a study that came out uh, from the Pew Research Forum within the last couple of weeks that talked about how by like 2070, Christianity will be a minority position in, in America. And then all these other articles in the news agencies start coming out. And, you know, then Christians start kind of getting nervous, right? Twitchy, you know. Oh no, what's going to happen? What about my kids, you know? Now what, right? And boy, if you let yourself kind of go down that tunnel, then it's bad. But, you know, you think about the Lord always provides, right? We talk about this. The Lord takes care of his church. The Lord takes care of his people. He is the Lord of creation. And so it's really good for us to think about that. So these, these verses here, you have seen all that the Lord your God has done. So he's saying, don't forget it. That no matter what happens, the Lord fights for you. And so, what do we do? Well, there may be things we can do, but the first thing we do is we go in prayer. And we, we sit back and we give it to the Lord and we say, Lord, please take this. And I find myself, the older I get, is I do more and more of that than I used to. You know, I look to the Lord and I say, Lord, help me, help us, help the church, help my family, help my boys, right? Take care of us, lead us. He hears your prayers. So he will, he will answer your prayers in his way and in his time. And if we can acknowledge that, that can help give us a little more rest as we go forward. So then, go to verse 11. So you're getting to the end of the book of Joshua. They've entered the promised land that the Lord has prepared. The Lord, through Joshua, has put everything in order, which order brings a little bit of peace, right? That is helpful, isn't it? If you can get your kids or your grandkids into a healthy rhythm, isn't that much better? Not perfect, but it is better, right? And then in verse 11, he says, Be very careful, therefore, to love the Lord your God. So it's the beginning of the Shema prayer in Deuteronomy 6. It's the the head of the commandments, right? And 
it puts everything in the proper perspective. So this he reminds the people of. Now you go to chapter 24. You get to the end of the book of Joshua, the last chapter. Now what he does is, in Joshua 24, 1 to 13, he recounts to them the Torah, the books of Moses, all that the Lord has done. So think about this. This is where I love like liturgics and the sense of sacramentology and holy mystery. Because, you know, if you just take a step back and you look at Joshua as we're doing and you're like, okay, they enter the promised land. God puts everything in order, puts their lives in order. There's a place where they go called Shiloh, the tent of meeting where God and people meet. And then they end by recounting the Torah, which would be the gospels to the Old Testament people. And that is like what happens with us in the church. Because you come to the font, right? You came to the font and you were baptized. And this is now where your lives are all starting to be put into order. I mean, your life gets put in order in baptism, right? When you renounce the devil and all his works and all his ways, and you confess the Father, and you confess the Son, and you confess the Holy Spirit, and then, then you process into the church. And you gather to Shiloh, which would be the altar, the chancel, and there our Gospels are read, which recount for us Christ's deliverance for his people. And Christ then is, right? All this stuff in the sacraments, in the gospel, Jesus is our rest giver. And so this is where our lives are properly ordered. And so I don't have to tell you this, but a life centered around the altar is a life that will experience Shiloh in a fuller capacity. Because we all deal with this to one level or another. <clears throat> but that will go crazy if we don't <clears throat> experience our Shiloh, our, our Christ, our Savior, his rest. But he turns everything around. And if you flip the hand out to the other side, Nehemiah chapter 8, they do the same thing. He gathers them together. In fact, you could, if you want to just take a quick look at this, it is kind of neat. <clears throat> Let's 
So Nehemiah chapter 8, starting at the first verse. In this book, the people's lives are being put in order. Ezra and Nehemiah go together. And it all has to do with rebuilding rebuilding the temple in Ezra. You know, so kind of what, what's happening is in, in many ways this is like what happens in Joshua, but it's a return from exile. So Ezra and Nehemiah, it's very much like Joshua, but they're returning from exile. The temple had been destroyed. They have to rebuild the temple. And so they come back to Shiloh. These two books, Ezra and Nehemiah, are God putting things in order, just like Joshua did. And then you get to Nehemiah chapter 8, and here's how it reads. And all the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate, and they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses, so the Torah, that the Lord had commanded Israel. So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, both men and women, and all who could understand what they heard on the first day of the seventh month. And he read from it, facing the square before the water gate from early morning until midday in the presence of the men and the women and those who could understand. And the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law, to the Torah. And Ezra the scribe stood on a wooden platform. We think that maybe this is where the concept of the pulpit came from that they had made for the purpose. And beside him stood these names that are hard to pronounce, Mattathiah, Shema, Aniah, Uriah, Hilkiah, and Maasiah on his right hand, and Padiah, Mishael, Melchijah, Hashum, Hashbadana, Zechariah, and Meshulam on his left hand. And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was above all the people, And as he opened it, all the people stood. What do we do when the gospel's going to be read? We stand. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen, lifting up their hands. And they bowed their heads and worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. And then all these people helped the people to understand the law. So this is very much like a Pentecost sort of, right? Where they're preaching to the people. They're going out. While the people remained in their places, they read from the book, from the law of God clearly, and they gave the sense so the people understood the reading. So there's the sermon to give the sense. I mean, this is exactly what happens in the divine service. Everybody gathers, everybody stands. This is the the gospel according to St. Luke. Amen. Praise to you, O Christ. It's read, and then the sermon comes, which gives the sense. So you have all that going on. 
Now back to Shiloh. So if you go to Zechariah chapter 9, it really starts to become clearer. Zechariah 9. And we're going to start at verse 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. And you know these scriptures well. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. As for you also, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. Return to your stronghold, O prisoners of hope. Today I declare that I will restore to you double. For I have bent Judah as my bow. I have made Ephraim its arrow. I will stir up your sons, O Zion, against your sons, O Greece, and wield you like a warrior's sword. So there is Palm Sunday, right? And next week, we are going to, our study will be kind of a carryover from this into uh, the Palm Sunday procession in John's Gospel and everything that's going on around it and how it lends itself to the appearance of Jesus, our true Shiloh, our true rest giver. So when you think then about this, it is the Lord himself who comes to, you know, if you think about these words in Zechariah 9, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. Return to your stronghold, O prisoners of hope. I will, I will restore you double. I mean, that is really a powerful image because the prisoners the people who have been captive could be physical captivity but it could also be the captivity of the soul that these things can literally destroy a person and destroy families and destroy communities. And he's saying, Jesus is coming and he will bring you peace. Look at on this, the back side of the handout this verse from Isaiah 30 18. Therefore, the Lord waits to be gracious to you. And therefore he exalts himself to show mercy to you. For the Lord is a God of justice. 
Blessed are all those who wait for him. So there's something about that because part of the hindrance or impediment to rest is our inability to wait, right? Because we, even if we pray, Lord, help me, help me with this situation, but it's in the waiting sometimes where we lose our minds. But if we can just think about scripture like this and that Jesus is present among us, you are not orphans. You are not left in this world alone, but you are precious to Jesus. So in his waiting, he's working things out. And that is, I think, an important component to a spiritual rest is to learn how to wait. Jesus is teaching us how to wait. The Eucharist is the best place to wait. We say our prayers, we drop them off at the altar, and then Jesus feeds us with his body and blood. He forgives you, he strengthens you, he shapes you. And this leads us to, and I'm gonna run out of time again, but we can always kind of maybe carry over before we get to John's Palm Sunday procession next week. But if you go to Matthew 11, 25 to 30, you know these words too. They're great words. Boy, you know, and it, this just occurred to me as I looked at the chapter, but you have, before these words, you have the messengers of John the Baptist that come and ask, are you the coming one or do we look for another? And then Jesus tells John's disciples, go and tell John what you see and hear. And then he does these things right for them to see. He says, you know, the, the lame receive their, or the, Let's see, where was that? Um, in verse four and five. Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear and the dead are raised up and the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. So what he does is he gives the very evidence of himself being Shiloh. You have all these people with these great needs and Jesus starts to take tend to them. He's like Joshua, putting everybody's lives in order, you see? But what did all those blind people and the lame and the, what did they do in between times? They had to wait. And now Jesus delivers. And it's this then, that leads to the end of the chapter where Jesus gives us these wonderful words starting at verse 25. At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and the understanding 
and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Aren't those great words? Come to me, all who are labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Wow. You know? So Jesus is saying he is Shiloh. He puts lives in order. He's showing everybody, this is what I'm capable of. And then he says, I'm your rest. And, you know, we don't have time now, but if we got just into the Greek, it is a mind blower because, like, when he says my yoke is easy and my burden is light... Well, let me open up the Greek here. When he says my yoke is easy, um, the word for easy actually is kind of a play on words. So it's Christos, but what does that sound like? Christ, right? So Christos, <laughs> yeah. So Christos, Christos. And the early church, the early Christians would use this as a play on words. Christos is the Christos. But it doesn't just mean easy. It means that he's useful. Jesus is useful. My yoke is useful. It bestows gifts. It brings something into one's life that they did not have. And the, the, the notion of rest, you know, there's prefixes in Greek. So like the notion of rest, there's the, the core word that means rest, but this word has a prefix that has an upward motion, upward movement. So I will give you rest. So the idea, he's saying that there's a, a heavenly rest. It's not of this world. So if you feel, so if, <clears throat> this is helpful if you feel like the world is making you crazy. The world's making me crazy. I look around and all I see are things that frustrate me. Jesus is saying, there's a different rest. It's a rest that's above. You know, it's the same thing within John 3 when Jesus says to Nicodemus, truly, truly, I say to you, you, can, you must be born again. Or the word in Greek is born from above because it has that same prefix that is upward. So you have to look up. You have to look to something else is the point, right? Don't just look to what's right here, but 
look out to God. And this is our Savior, the one who switches burdens. He, these verses are indicating to us that our heavy burdens, let us give him our heavy burdens. Let him give us his. And his burdens are full of victory and resurrection and newness and joy and light, a lightness, not a heaviness. And this is the life we've been given. And today and every day, Jesus is our Shiloh, our rest giver. We go to him, he comes to us, he feeds us, he teaches us, and our lives are ordered by his his loving peace. Okay, let's close for today. We'll pray and end with the benediction. O Lord, keep your church in your perpetual mercy. And because without you we cannot but fall, preserve us from all things hurtful and lead us to all things profitable to our salvation. Through Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord look upon you with favor and give you peace. Amen.